It's Tuesday, March 4th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio from Motley Fool One, Morgan Housel, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Mike Olson. Gentlemen, happy Tuesday. Good to be here. Hello. We had a hint of snow here yesterday, which meant no show, leaving us with plenty to catch up on from the last few days, including the departure of Apple's CFO and Warren Buffett's latest annual letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. But before all that, let's start with the big macro news, Russia versus the Ukraine. Over the last few days, tensions between the two countries have come closer to a boiling point than anyone would like, with Russia sending troops into the Crimean region to protect its naval interests there, as the rest of the world watches and prepares to respond with economic sanctions. Now, guys, we're not here to talk politics, we're here to talk investing. So, let's look at this from an investor's perspective. Historically, when these sorts of geopolitical dramas rear their heads, What's the market's reaction to them? And what's been the market's reaction to this particular drama? Well, there's always a knee-jerk reaction of Mm. uh, searching for safety. So sell stocks, jump into gold treasuries. I think if you look at the really long-term history of what war has done to stock markets and uh, and different economies – The answer, and this is true for almost everything we talk about investing, is a person who is patient and doesn't panic wins out in the end. Mm. There's a historian named William Bernstein who's done some really interesting work. He showed that even in European countries that were totally decimated in World War II, people who held stocks for 10, 15 years after that made all their money back in real terms. These are countries that were literally bombed to rubble. Mm. if If you just held on and waited a sufficient period of time... We're talking 10, 15 years, not that long. You you made your money back. So it's always the case with these things that the person who panics is not going to do as well as the person who doesn't. And that's that's really true uh, for what we're looking at with Russia and Ukraine right now. You know, you you saw the market sell off 150 points yesterday. I thought, you know, that's that's pretty normal. Now now the market's up 200 points today. Mm So Mm -hmm. there's your lesson in 24 hours. (laughs) Right. I think I think there are two things. There are two rules I sort of ascribe to in investing, which is that. First, capitalism works, and the second is that people will do what is in their own best interest. And that kind of dovetails nicely with what Morgan just said, which is that if you are dealing in a capitalist economy and a lot of money comes out of it, labor naturally becomes cheaper, and so money will go back to those economies. And then there's the second bit, which is in the context of a very global and interconnected economy right now, you could very easily make the argument that a country like Russia, uh, this time it's maybe different. Hmm. They are going to do what is in their best interest. And so they're not going to push the envelope right here because there will be enormous capital flight, which is very much to their detriment. This is very much a resources-rich economy. And the marginal consumption of their wares is predicated upon the health of European and Eastern European countries. They know what's good for them. They also know that if the U.S. were to impose economic sanctions, that could make what is already a bad situation worse. The ruble plummeted to uh, a very, very low point yesterday. Mm. And they know it's good for him. So I don't think that this is something you really worry about. This is this is Tom Friedman's uh, cute rule. I don't know how serious it is, but no two countries that have a McDonald's in them have ever gone to war with each other. Yeah, you know, that's a classic. A, you know, what, you know that that rule may may very well be breached someday. But I think there's truth to the general idea that the global economy is intertwined, and it is very much not in most industrialized countries' interest. Mm to go to war with another industrialized country. Things get real bad real quick. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing how much an economic, economic sanction or two can do. So who you have to worry about are the countries that are not intertwined with the global economy, like North Korea. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, They have that, a lot less to lose. Right. The ones that don't have anything to lose are the ones you worry about. You worry about the Irans. You worry about the North right. Koreas. Hmm. Very reasonable. Um, so what's an investor to do today? Obviously, remain calm. But is there any... 
any particular sector, any particular company that you guys are keeping an eye on right now and saying, hmm, this could be an interesting play? No, I think think if you look at the history of war events that look like they were going to be very big that turned into nothing and vice versa look like they were nothing, like the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand Mm -hmm. in the the 19-teens that led to World War I, the history of being able to say what comes next for these events – for wars is, I think, less credible than it is in the stock market where it's already bad enough. So, no, I, I don't think any investor should be looking at anything sector-wise or company-wise related to Russia and Ukraine that they weren't looking at two weeks ago. Right. I think that the rule, of, the basic rule of thumb here is that – and Warren summed this up pretty well in his shareholder letter mm. – is that you want to be able to have some confidence with respect to the the amount of money that a given company can make in five years. And I would also attend that to say you either want that or you want enormous blue sky potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Russia, there was not rule of law prior to this. And you know, arguably speaking, because Ukraine very much exists at Russia's behest, hmm. there were, they, they were in the same position by corollary. Um, so I wouldn't have invested in a Russian company before this, and I don't think that I would invest in a Russian company now. Fair enough. All right. In other news, late last week, Mt. Gox, once the third largest Bitcoin exchange in the world, filed for bankruptcy after announcing that $500 million in Bitcoins had been stolen. The price of Bitcoins dropped in response to the news, but has since recovered. Now, guys, we like to talk about Bitcoin because it's an interesting topic. But when roughly 6% of the total Bitcoins in circulation can be stolen without a trace, and they still have no idea how they did this, is there really the chance Bitcoin becomes an honest-to-God currency? Well, a lot of the what people liked about Bitcoin was that it didn't have the interference of awful things like FDIC insurance. <laughs> that was the allure of it. Mm-hmm. And now people are realizing that maybe things like FDIC insurance are, are kind of – there's a reason that we have them in place. Right. So, you know, I, I, I think it, it might be the case that w- with Bitcoin that what people thought was its benefit or it's actually what's going to take it down. Mm. Warren Buffett also made a great point on CNBC yesterday morning where they asked him if Bitcoin was a currency. And he said, well, you know, it's, 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 it only ha- Bitcoin only has value right now because it is exchangeable for U.S. dollars or, or euros or yen or whatnot. Right. That's what makes it valuable. It's right. exchangeable to paper currency. It's the same with gold, actually. Gold has value because you can exchange it for dollars. You can't, you know... the stores uh, by and large are only accepting Bitcoin the few stores that are mm. stores that are because they can exchange it into dollars pretty easily right. that's its value so if you look at that it only has value in that it's exchangeable and that it's technology features of being hidden in you know uh, you know you know it's 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 moved away from the Fed mm-hmm. if those are bad things then what benefit does it have over the dollar All right I think I think there's kind of a much larger lesson here. When you talk about currencies and and economies, markets, businesses, they only remain healthy to the extent that the people who will patronize these things have confidence in them. And and that that kind of speaks to the larger challenges associated with building a currency from nothing. Mm. You know, you you have to this is a snowball that needs to gather mass relatively quickly and continuously. And to the extent there's any movement away from that, how do you restore that confidence? Uh, I don't know that confidence can ever exist on a large enough scale because, as Morgan said, there's not that degree of regulation. So, you know, how, how do you get there? I don't know. 
poor Bitcoin. Do you guys own any Bitcoins? Uh, no, I don't. I, I don't even know how to own them. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the finance guys who do oh yeah, you can do some exchange where they'll take like twenty cents on the dollar in right. order to buy yeah. one. That's Matt, cool. Matt um, Copenheffer tried to buy Thanksgiving dinner with Bitcoin last uh, last Thanksgiving, and one store kicked him out, and the other threatened to call the police. So it's <laughs> were they like you're a turkey? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, someday, someday. All right, moving right along. Tesla has announced that it's expanding into Europe. The electric car company will build 30 new European service centers and stores, and it believes that by the end of 2014, combined sales in Europe and Asia will be almost twice as high as sales in North America. Do you guys believe them? So I think this is a smart move, and certainly they have a blueprint for doing this, as they have in the U.S., but this is a very challenging endeavor. You have to Mm. understand that you know the infrastructure associated with building you know a full scale service and supercharger network and also getting sufficient enough buy in on the part of your consumers mm. you know getting them to, to believe that it actually exists is very 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 challenging and then you know even if you wanted to go ahead and take the view that all oh, this is going to work let's just zoom out take a 10,000 foot view here i was doing some math on this the other day just for curiosity's sake and it's actually quite relevant right now so the market right now has priced Tesla as if they're going to claim a 1% share of the global market, move their vehicles at a 50K price tag, and have industry best profit margins to the tune of three percentage points. Now, that's all very, very possible. Um, and if they execute flawlessly, it's, you know, it's theirs to take. But an industry so cutthroat, and also remember, they sold 30,000 vehicles last mm-hmm. year. That's a really hard undertaking. The expectations are, are sort of stacked against them. Hmm. Well, you, you know, you, you had mentioned that you know, uh, to expand in Europe is 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 difficult. The capital expenditure that you need—that's a big undertaking. But if there's any company that has proven that it is up to big challenges of big undertakings, I think Tesla has proven okay. that it's it's up to the challenge. Of to the your point, years, yeah. So. No, I mean they they've broken into. Uh, what is the last time you've heard of a startup auto company? Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean the fact that they've even been able to become relevant, and I think I think you know this is a credit to them because they have these these modular manufacturing processes, and they've managed to keep a, a lean sort of supply chain in R&D, which when you look at the auto manufacturers that have been troubled, the GMs of the world, I think there's something like they had like 30 R&D platforms. Mm-hmm. That obviously doesn't scale well. So you know, they, they've proven that, yes, they, they understand some things that other people have done very badly. Definitely something to watch for. All right. As for specific earnings news, the big headline today comes from Radio Shack. The company announced a 20% decline in net sales, a 19% decline in comps, and the intention to shut down 1,100 of its stores or roughly 20% of its locations. Guys, is there any hope for Radio Shack at this point? Can anyone think of a company that is, has fallen as hard as Radio Shack has <laughs> and made any sort of decent recovery? I mean, turnarounds are just a horrible game to start. I, I, I really fail to see how there's any future for the company whatsoever outside mm-hmm. of museums. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I, yeah. I, the, there's one word, and everybody else has said it, but I'll say it again, and that is Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. They're just in a horribly difficult position, you know, stocking consumer electronic wares in, in a highly competitive sphere. and. You know, those folks that have been able to do it well, the Walmarts and the Amazons of the world, they have wicked supply chain efficiency and low incremental overhead. And in turn, they have the ability to scale these incremental costs. 
the Wall Street Journal, there was a great article on it this morning, which, which kind of summed it up really well. So Radio Shack has 5,000 stores, 27,500 employees, 3.5 billion sales. Let's compare that to Walmart or Amazon. 470 billion in sales and 2 million employees for Amazon. Mm-hmm. 75 billion in sales and 117k employees at Amazon. I think you can see how this story is going to end, and it's you know it's not one that you want to be on the other side of. <laughs> the Radio Shack Museum. Would anyone pay to go there? I would. Oh, really? <laughs> and see some old brick Nokia phones from right. back in the day? Right, and some cables. And They'll have plugs. Circuit City there, too. Switches. Um, right. Nice. Good Circuit City shout-out. Uh, All right. Uh, earlier today, Apple announced that CFO Peter Oppenheimer will retire by September. Oppenheimer has worked at Apple for about 18 years and been its CFO for the last 10 of them. So he seems like a pretty integral part of the company. Are you guys worried at all about him leaving? Do we like the new guy, uh, Luca Maestri? I-, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, uh, what do you think of the transition? I don't know anything about the new guy, but for a company like Apple, a CFO is is important. He's, mm-hmm. he's a key part of the company, but it's not it's not what's going to make or break Apple's future ten years from now. Right. You want all of your talent in product guys and marketing guys, and that's where the talent is stacked in Apple. So no, I I, I don't think ten years from now we'll look back at this as as any sort of turning point. But you know, when, when you pay, when you pay your employees as well as Apple does, mm. some of them are going to want to retire. Yeah, you know, I think. This is not something you really worry about. Um, it seems to be a fair, fairly well choreographed transition. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you look at the collected tenure of Apple executives, it's hard to believe that this is sort of like a morale or culture issue. Um, this guy's been here for 18 years. They hired this guy a year ago, and from the very moment they hired him, he was appearing on conference calls. So it looks yeah. like. You know, this guy's 51. He's been at Apple for 18 years. I'm just going to go ahead and put out that he might be absolutely exhausted and wants to take advantage of the fact that he's absurdly wealthy (laughs) before he dies. Uh, (laughs) All reasonable. All reasonable. (laughs) Okay. Speaking of the importance of leadership, last but not least, on Saturday, Berkshire Hathaway released its annual letter to shareholders written by none other than the great Warren Buffett. Now, we're big Buffett fans here at The Fool, so I know you guys read the letter. What were some of your highlights from this year's letter and maybe some practical takeaways for our listeners? Well, we were talking earlier that basically every one of these letters for the past 20, 30 years, <laughs> plus Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meetings in Omaha, says virtually the exact same thing, just slightly reworded a little bit. So it's kind of He's kind of screwed himself just because he's done it so well, now everyone's bored with it. But it's really interesting. We still you know, anxiously await these letters and read every word when they come out. Mm. <laughs> they say the same thing. You know, he looks at businesses, not companies. He's just measuring long-term profitability. He doesn't. He doesn't really care much about short-term volatility. Mm-hmm. You know, he used an example in his letter this year about a farm he bought in 1983, of just you know, just looking at long-term earnings and not care what the the short-term volatility of that City price would have been. Space, Some, yeah. uh, a retail store in New York City. It's the same thing year after year after year, but we still like it. So there's. He's, he's got a buy-and-hold mentality for investing. It's a buy-and-hold mentality for letter writing. And I, I really think there's a takeaway from that is that buy-and-hold investing mm-hmm. is not complicated. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing where you can write a, 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 a brand-new letter every year that has new insight and new tips. It's, the tips are really very simple. They can be summarized in a couple pages. You just you want to buy good businesses that you can predict and hold them for the long term. And that's really – it's really not much more complicated than that. Right. Yeah, I think, I think there were two uh, kind of interesting bits 
when you talk about uh, the importance of enduring businesses, the one thing that he hammered on, and this is sort of a Berkshire-specific point, is that he think Berkshire, thinks Berkshire shares are worth way more than 1.2 times book value. Mm-hmm. He has publicly said that if and when Berkshire shares trade below 1.2 times book, they will repurchase them. Uh, I think there's a little bit of a Jedi mind trick going on there in that if he says that, why is the market going to send shares below 1, mm. 1.2 times book value? But if you wanted to take a practical implication of this, and this is just some back-of-the-envelope math, if Berkshire shares were to trade at 1.2 times book, the implication is they'll do a 12% return on equity and 3% earnings growth. The historical average of the S&P, 15% ROE and 6% earnings growth. I think that's right, right, Morgan? Sounds about right. Mm -hmm. So when I ask myself that question, do I think Berkshire is a higher quality business and their businesses are higher quality and they'll be able to at least grow at the rate of the S&P? Yes. Um, another point on that, that specific matter, the insurance business is horrible. Uh, it's just horribly, horribly commoditized, cutthroat competition. Um, and he noted that their insurance operations, they have made a profit on the insurance policies. Insurance companies have two sources of income, the insurance business and investments. 11 out of the last 12 years. State Farm, uh, one of the country's largest insurers, has lost money nine out of 12 years. There's a key learning for investors here, at least from where I come. The first is that you want a company that either has a unique orientation and that they're able to write really quirky risks or that they have cost advantages which are self-fulfilling. In the case of Geico, the fact that they are able to write policies cheaply, cheaper than their competitors, in fact, reinforces what advantages they have from a scale standpoint. So they're able to pass more cost savings onto their consumers. So that's the type of thing where that that cost advantage is sort of a snowball. Uh, And you, you have to like that, obviously. Uh, do you want do you want to take the Barton Biggs quote, Morgan, or, or should I? I don't remember the Barton Biggs. Oh, quote. this is, it, it was the obligatory Warren Buffett sex. It had something about reference. sex. I remember. Yes. That. Yeah. I mean, there's always they're, they're always like very inappropriate and awesome sexual references, which somehow <laughs> I, or another relate to the life. I, I have the to drop in if people want to read. There's an article I wrote three years ago. It's called Warren Buffett on Sex. It's a compilation of his sex quotes. Yes, yes, it's excellent. I'm I remember Googling it actually. That right now, um, but. He, he brings up this one quote on bull markets and valuation, and this is just him going ahead to the other side of Warren Buffett, which is like, you know, he says, we want to buy great businesses. We want to know how much money you can earn in five years, but we also want to pay a good price. And the quote is, a bull market is like sex. It feels best just before it ends. <laughs> and I, I think there's kind of like a practical ra- – I'm, I'm going to go ahead and get philosophical on this. Uh, I think Please there's do. kind of Please a practical do. ramification here, which is that life and capitalism, they're kind of – they're entropic systems. And most times, things that are too good have a tendency to converge on some equilibrium. Um, it's hard to sustain a thing that is really good. And mm. That's just how it goes. So, you know, you stack the odds in your favor. Um, or don't stop having sex. <laughs> Words of wisdom from Michael Olson, Morgan Housel, and, of course, Warren Buffett. Guys, thank you for being here. Good to be here. <laughs> As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this, this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.